Thank you, Marco. Thank you, Marco. Yeah, you'll find that the time will probably go pretty quickly as we um, spend this this time. And as Marco said, many people have said they've been transformed. Certainly not me that's transforming anyone. That is God's word and his spirit who dwells within us. So that is the transforming power because we this is going to be filled with scripture, right? Lots of references to scripture throughout. And as I was telling some who were here a little bit earlier, this is really about your heart attitudes and the transformation of your heart primarily and your relationship to the Lord, not just about the dollars that are in your pocket, your bank account, or your portfolio, or lack thereof, right? So let's, let's uh, dive into this and, and see what the Lord has for us, but let me start with a uh, word of prayer, all right? So let's dedicate our time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we spend this time on this topic that is often neglected in churches or misunderstood or misapplied, I pray that you would take these principles, these fundamentals, and help us to develop ourselves through your spirit and through your word that you would develop us into faithful stewards and that we would understand what stewardship really means and how that can apply to our lives and how we can also uh, relay that to others around us, to our children, for those of us who have them, that uh, these principles would be ingrained in us in such a way that we walk around thinking about how we can glorify you with the resources you have granted to us. So we dedicate our time to you. We ask you to bless it. And I just pray that you use me, a broken vessel, to convey your truth to your people in a way that is um, honoring to you and profitable to them. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so some of you have already seen the uh, schedule here for today. So this is how we will be proceeding. We're going to be covering uh, this, this first section, Biblical Worldview of the Faithful Steward, in two different sessions. And we'll have a, a little break in between. So we will do that. And then we're going to do any Q&A that might come up. So I'll try to stick to this schedule as much as possible. There may be some deviation. Then we'll get into section two, which is earning as a faithful steward. And then section three will be our closing session, living as a faithful steward. And we'll have Q&As and we'll have lunch there too. So thank you, Marco, for all that you've done to get this ready logistically. Thank you, Alex, for the AV. And, and I especially want to thank Brad, even though he's, he's half a world away in Turkey. I just want to uh, thank him for this opportunity. Brad and I, we, we go a long way back. We served together as missionaries in Samara, Russia, for many years. And our families both came back at the same time on the same plane 10 years ago, back in 2013. And the Lord directed him, um, obviously, to where he is, to being a pastor, to being a professor at the seminary, and the Lord has greatly blessed him with just many gifts, and so I'm grateful for that and for his friendship. And the Lord just took me and directed me a different direction, back into an industry where I started in the financial services industry. So um, took me a while to understand. To really understand, okay, Lord, why are you taking me out of you know, teaching theology to uh, 
pastors and church leaders in Russia back here to the U.S. and putting me back into an industry that I came out of. And I've just seen the fruit of that. And this is one of those reasons is being able to take biblical principles, take the uh, training I've received through seminary and through um, experience on the mission field and bring that into this understanding of a biblical understanding of finances. So that's just one of those aspects. So, so hopefully this will be fruitful for you as well. And so just uh, we'll kind of follow that schedule as much as we can. So let's get into this and let's take a look at a couple of passages that you'll see in your notes if you have them or you'll see these on, of course, you'll see them here up on the screens. And these are pretty vital. And this is so important here just to understand this, these two key verses from Jeremiah chapter 9. And I'm just going to read these here. Thus says the Lord... Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, and let not a rich man boast of his riches. All those things don't matter. They are not primary. What is primary? But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord." Now, you men who have been attending Men of the Word, and I've been attending as well through listening. I try to listen to everything that Brad teaches. So you've been going through a series, No One Like Him, right? And this series has emphasized all the divine attributes. And you've delved deeply into those attributes. And so this verse 24 here is what you've been doing is been given knowledge from God's word regarding who he is. He describes himself clearly to us in his word. And you've taken a look at these various attributes, his loving kindness, his justice, his righteousness, right? And so this is what's vital, to know him. And even in this course, that's what we're focusing on. How can I know God better? How can he use my financial resources to change me and transform me into the image of Christ? How can you use my finances as a means to make me a better steward and to sanctify me? We often compartmentalize that. Finances over here doesn't really matter what I do with those things. But you're going to see very clearly what God has to say about that that you cannot separate and compartmentalize your finances from your spiritual life. If you do so, it's to your detriment and maybe even to your destruction. So let's focus on knowing the Lord, even in this time, during this course. Also, Luke 16, a, a very important New Testament passage, the words of Jesus himself. He was faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Many of us are serving wealth. We bow down to the God of money. We may not look at it that way, but if your heart and mind are focused on those things to such a degree that it takes the place of the Lord, then that's what you are serving. Whether you have it or not, if you desire it, if you long for it more than you long for God, then you are serving it. Even if you are in debt and you don't have it and you're focused on that, guys, come, come on in, find a place for you. No problem. Thank you. Good to see you, Tig. Okay, so a couple of key passages, and this is probably the fundamental passage on stewardship, to being a faithful steward and seeing how the Lord would use us to use our, our understanding of our finances to draw us closer to him so that we can serve him more faithfully. Okay? All right, we're going to look at uh, some introductory an identification of the heart, and a little book here that I don't think we have in our bookstore, but very impactful, called True Riches. So a lot, when we go through the first part of every section, and we look at these issues of the heart, a lot of that I got from this book here. So very excellent little book, True Riches, what Jesus really said about money in your heart. It's not that I agree with everything in here, but for the most part, this is really excellent work. That's going to be the same for anything that I recommend. It doesn't mean I wholeheartedly endorse what everything is in the book, but there's certainly some good points, and using discernment will be helpful. So this is a great book. And so they begin their book by asking questions so that we can identify where we are now. Okay? So we're going to take a look at three different views of money. We're going to start here with the pharisaical view of money, and hopefully... Most, if not all of us, will not fall under this view, but be honest with yourself, okay? So let's just think of a a Pharisee back then and his view of finances, money, wealth. This is something that a Pharisee might say. Why do people listen to this guy? In other words, to Jesus. He just panders to the masses with his financial jibber-jabber, sell your possessions and give to the poor? Yeah, right. Who would take care of you then? It is more blessed to give than to receive. Convenient thing to teach people when you're a poor traveling preacher. I can't believe this guy. I've worked hard to earn my keep and have been saving for 10 years to buy a property I can retire on. I give my tithe, but come on. If I listened to this guy, I'd never be able to make it. So you might identify there. And there might be times where you identify here and you don't, right? You might kind of switch between these different views. But, you know, this is the Pharisee saying, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, and everything I've done is a result of all my efforts. Why would I go and give that away? This is for me, and this is now for me to enjoy the good life. A second view that I call a Christianized cultural view of money. Now, this might hit closer to home. I'm proud of what I've accomplished in life. I've worked hard and deserve a few nice things. I see what other people have, houses, cars, and comfortable lifestyles, and these inspire my desires. 
I'm driven to save and invest by my concerns about the future. And even though I know there are people with needs, I've got to look after myself and my family before I can help anyone else. So not so bad. doesn't appear to be so um, self-focused. Um, you know, there's desire to not only take care of self, but to take care of family and, you know, put them first, make sure that they're taken care of. Not necessarily anything wrong with that. But let's, let's uh, compare that to this last view, I, what I call a biblically transformed view of money. And so this view, and just look for these attitudes that are so important. I'm grateful for all that I have, heart of gratitude. It's truly a gift I never deserved. I didn't do it. The Lord blessed me with this. Though I have some goals and dreams, I'm totally content, even in time of suffering, because my identity is secure in Jesus. In every situation, I lean on God and trust him for, my, for provision. Although my own planning and hard work play a role, my heart and my life are full of generosity, animated by love for those in need, even when it costs me dearly. This is an understanding that God is at the center that God is the one who grants. God is the one who gives. God is the one who cares for me. Why do I need to be worried when he has made so many promises to me that he will never, ever break? He will never break those promises. And there are promises that if I am generous, he will continue to take care of me. So it's a a deep understanding of who God is that will transform our hearts and cause us to be faithful stewards like this faithful steward. Okay? So keep those in mind. And at the end, we're going to want to return to these and see if uh, there's been any transformation in thinking. And hopefully there has been. So let's now get into this uh, first major section biblical worldview of the faithful steward, and we'll hopefully cover the first uh, couple of, of letters here, first couple of major points within this section before we take a little break here. Okay? So we're looking here at, first of all, a biblical stewardship overview. If we were to define stewardship, if you were to go out there into churches and ask them to define stewardship, I'm sure that you would find them defining it in many different ways. Most often is, how can we get people to give more money? Let's have a stewardship drive. We need to raise funds for building expansion. That's often seen as stewardship. That is not stewardship. That is not stewardship at all. And you're going to see why. So let's look at how we should properly define stewardship. Here's another little book uh, by... Um, let me see, grab the right one here, by E.G.J. Link, who's in charge here. You'll see this in the recommended resources. I don't think you can get it in print anymore, but you can get this for free online, and there's a link in the notes that will give you this. Okay, so this first definition of a steward is from this book, and it's great. It's not just about financial stewardship. It's kind of a stewardship 101 for your whole life to be a steward. And incidentally, that's important as well. We're not, you know, we're focusing on finances here, but stewardship is much broader than that, 
We're just focusing on the finances. So who's in charge here? By Jay Link. Okay? So again, check your notes. At the end of this section, you'll see a, a, a link to the PDF, a free PDF online for that. Okay, so let's see what he says, how he defines a steward. By definition, a steward is a person who manages another's property or financial affairs. One who administers anything as the agent of another or others, a manager. So for us to be stewards of God, we must acknowledge that all we are and all we have possession of belongs to him. We are charged with managing his property according to his wishes. See what that is, that definition of a steward? A steward looks at everything that has been given to him, his own very life as belonging to the Lord. Lord, I'm yours. Lord, everything I have is yours. And therefore, I need to care for that, everything, as you desire, as you want me to, not as I want to. Because I'm just a steward. I'm just a manager. Everything I have and everything that I am belongs to you fully and completely. That's where you have to start. If you want to know how do I become a better steward, you start right here by committing everything that you are and everything that you have to the Lord. Saying it's all yours, Lord. It's all yours. You hold everything you have with an open palm, not a clenched fist. But everything I have is yours to do with what you want. It's all yours. Okay, so that's a steward in general terms. Let's look at uh, what Scripture has to say. In the Bible, a steward is a person that is given authority to oversee the affairs of another person. Often, the steward was a slave that was elevated to the status of manager over the household. In the New Testament, steward is a translation of the Greek word oikonomos, a compound word which comes from the word for house, oikos, and the word for law, namos. So in a sense, it's the law of the house, the household rules. And the steward is given the charge of handling the household. Howard Dayton writes here, In Scripture, the position of a steward is one of great responsibility. For he or she is the supreme authority under the master and has full authority for all the master's possessions and household affairs. So you have delegated authority from the master to take care of all of his possessions. That's what a steward is. Point C here. The steward must be trustworthy. Key term. Right? We're looking at the faithful steward. Trustworthy would be another synonym there. A steward must be trustworthy in order to earn the position and be found faithful in order to maintain that position and potentially be given even greater responsibility over time. So what does a steward need to be? Trustworthy and faithful. Where do we get that from? 1 Corinthians 4.2. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Direct statement from 1 Corinthians 4.2. Certainly that applies not only in finances, but in other realms of our life, as you'll find in 1 Corinthians but it certainly does not, not apply to our finances. 
Also Matthew 25, 21, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Trustworthy, faithful. Both are found here. D, the terms steward and stewardship are often misunderstood and misused by churches in their teachings. And this is what I was alluding to earlier. Stewardship is not synonymous with fundraising or capital campaigns that so often characterize the efforts of churches to raise funds. That's what you're typically going to find a, a pastor of stewardship maybe in some other churches, and what his goal is to get everybody to give more. That's his task, his duty. Bring more into so we can fund all of our projects, our buildings, whatever. Okay? That's not stewardship. Okay? Also, stewardship is not synonymous with tithes or offerings. You're like, but I thought that's exactly what stewardship was, what I give. I need to be a good steward and give. Well, let's see what, uh, what unfolds as we examine this further. Each of these concepts has to do with what a person gives, right? This understanding, or misunderstanding, we might say, has to do with what a person gives, while stewardship deal- deals with what a person keeps. When I give funds away, I'm not the steward of those funds, person receiving that or the church receiving that is now the steward of those funds. I am a steward of what is left in my charge. That's what I'm a steward of. Same Jay Link here, quoting from his book. In other words, it is about how you manage everything that you have been entrusted to oversee. What, pe- what most people miss is that stewardship is more about how you manage what is left after you give than what is about what you give. That tra- kind of a transformation, a change in your thinking, that I need to be a steward of what it remains, what I have. That's what I'm a steward over. What I give away <clears throat> is stewarded by someone else. Okay, let's take a look at here of stewardship illustrated. I don't have all the passages up here. I'm just going to make the reference here. So a person that should immediately come to your mind is Joseph in the Old Testament in Genesis 37 through 50. Faithful man. Right? So what's the story of Joseph? He's sold into slavery in Egypt. He is uh, purchased for the house of Potiphar who's the captain of the bodyguard, who buys him from the Ishmaelites. His brother sold him to the Ishmaelites, and he's purchased by Potiphar. And it's interesting that the Lord was with Joseph. He became successful. That's what Genesis 39 tells us. And he was in the house of his master, an Egyptian. So he had a master, right? He was literally a slave. But his master saw that the Lord was with him, And the Lord blessed everything under Joseph's care. So what did the master do? He made him overseer of everything in his household. That's what uh, Potiphar did. And the Lord blessed this man's house 
because Joseph was, the Lord was with Joseph, first of all, but the Lord also blessed Joseph with many gifts, and Joseph was faithful with those gifts. So, we know the story then of what happened, how he was then imprisoned under false pretenses. But then eventually the Lord takes him out of prison and brings him not in, back into the house of Potiphar, but into the house of Pharaoh. And basically the same thing happens when Pharaoh is seeking a wise man to interpret his dreams. It's Joseph who's the one who is called on to interpret those dreams. And Joseph interprets them correctly for Pharaoh. And as a result, Pharaoh says, I need someone like you. Where am I going to find anyone like this man, like Joseph? Well, there was no one as wise or discerning as him. So he came into the house of Pharaoh and was given charge over everything and he was number two. The only person higher than him was Pharaoh, given complete charge of the entire country because there was wisdom. And they needed wisdom to prepare for this eventual famine that would come. They would have these times of plenty and then the times of famine. So Pharaoh puts his signet ring on Joseph's hand. He clothes him in fine garment, puts a gold necklace around his neck, and he had him ride in his second chariot going throughout the land. And everyone bowed the knee to Joseph. Everyone in the land, with the exception of Pharaoh. And then in uh, chapter 30, or 41, verse 44, Pharaoh says this to Joseph. Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. So here is a man whom the Lord blessed and had a, certainly a, a purpose for but Joseph was, was he trustworthy? Yes, he was absolutely trustworthy. Was he faithful? Yes, he was entrusted with the entire country. And he's not even an Egyptian. Here he is, an, a slave from a foreign country. And he's entrusted with this. So the Lord greatly blesses him. But that is really like sort of the epitome of Steward, uh, an illustration of stewardship, the life of Joseph. We can see also in the New Testament, just one example, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. And I, I won't have that up on the screen either, so just let me read that for you. For it's just like a man who goes about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. Sound familiar? Entrusting possessions to a slave. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. That's important too. Each according to his own ability. The one who received one had certain abilities. The one who received five had certain abilities. And it was up to the master to distinguish between those and entrust each one properly, appropriately. In the same manner... The one who had received two talents, oh, oh, sorry, immediately the one who had received the five talents went out and traded with them and gained five more. In the same manner, the one who had received two talents gained two more. But the one who received one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. 
Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought him five more, saying, Master, you entrusted me with five talents. To See, I have gained five more talents for you. The master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. They both received the same reward. And the one also who had received the one talent came and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you, gathered, where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he has does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a parable Jesus taught. And look, he's using practical, everyday occurrences. A master with a household, with slaves, with possessions, to illustrate spiritual truth. We all have been entrusted with something. Therefore, we must all be faithful with that something we have, whether it's much or little. If we take that and bury it in the ground, do nothing with it, that is not pleasing to the Lord. I know you're just thinking, right, okay, dollars. I've got to make more dollars or something, right? That's what I'm, I'm entrusted to do here. No, it's being faithful. It's being trustworthy. It's not dependent on how much or how little you're given. But if you're faithful and trustworthy, that's what the Lord is looking for. That's what he wants from us. And so, again, we'll delve deeper into this as we go. But those are just two illustrations of stewardship from the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are multiple others. Okay? So, stewardship success versus failure. How do we succeed as stewards? We succeed by being faithful. Not at the end, count the dollars up. I have this much. I have this pile. That must be, mean that I'm faithful. That must mean, must mean that I'm successful. Well, again, it's the faithfulness that's the importance. Faithfulness. A steward must be faithful in all areas of their lives, in both the material realm as well as the spiritual realm. Jesus was teaching that through that parable. To be faithful. Some stewards are given greater responsibilities than others, yet faithfulness is not determined by how much you have, but rather by how you have handled 
what you have been given. That we take this responsibility seriously. Because the Lord is entrusting things to us, whether that be physical things, whether that be relationships, family, friends, job, whether that even be money. This is what the Lord is entrusting to us and what he desires from us is to be faithful. And if we're faithful, he'll bless us. I'm not guaranteeing you he's going to bless you financially so that you have all the money that's in the world. That's not the point. The Lord will take care of you no matter what. If you belong to him, he will take care of you no matter what. But what he desires from you is faithfulness. What he desires from me is faithfulness and to be trustworthy. So being faithful in smaller areas will lead to faithfulness in greater areas. Okay, so these, this idea, I am harping on it. Faithfulness, trustworthiness cannot be overstressed. We have to inculcate that into our lives. I must be faithful. I must be trustworthy. Lord, help me to be that. Because I want to honor you, my master. You own it all. I am just a slave. Help me to be faithful and to administer what you have entrusted to me in a faithful way, as a faithful steward. It's crucial to a proper understanding of stewardship. And just like those who are given little, and they demonstrate faithfulness in being given little, they're going to be given greater responsibility. That's what that parable demonstrates to us as well. So if you say, hey, I, the Lord has brought me to himself. I'm part of his body. I'm part of a local church. I'm part of Grace Community Church now. Um, you should be looking for opportunities to minister. How are you going to serve others? How are you going to take the gifts that the Lord has given you to serve others? It's not just the pastors, leaders, teachers who are the ones who minister. It's the entire body of Christ that ministers to one another. And so if God's entrusting you with something small, and let's just say in this for an example, small here is your finances. This is an immaterial or a material thing that is temporal. Be faithful with that, and he will entrust you with greater things. What are greater things? Spiritual riches, spiritual resources. Why would he entrust you with that, the greater, if you cannot manage well the lesser? Right? If you're the Lord, you're saying that person is not faithful with the temporal material things that I've entrusted to them. Why would I ever give them spiritual things? Why would I entrust them with spiritual things to take care of? I'm not going to do that until they demonstrate faithfulness here. Make sense? Yeah? Okay. Point four under success through faithfulness. Being faithful will cause you to grow in godliness and spiritual maturity. A steward's faithfulness will result in contentment and peace and greater reward from the master, which typically consists of being given greater responsibility. 
both in the present life as well as in the future millennial kingdom. Are you aware that Jesus is coming back? Are you aware that he is going to set up his kingdom here on earth and reign for a thousand years? Are you aware that you will be part of that kingdom? Are you aware that you will be given responsibilities in that kingdom? Of course, we think of responsibilities here and now as the Lord builds his kingdom. But that literal kingdom is coming. It is coming. The king is coming. The king is going to set up his kingdom. We will be part of that in our glorified state. And what we do now has reference to what kind of responsibility we will be given in his kingdom. Be faithful here, now, so that you can have a great role in any capacity. We'll all have some sort of role in the kingdom. But whatever that role is, that you would be faithful in that. We don't think that way. We only think about the here and now. We think about heaven as future far off. But we don't realize, Jesus, he's coming back. Who will he find faithful? And who will he put in charge of various aspects of his kingdom in the millennial kingdom before we ever get to the eternal kingdom? The faithful steward also experiences greater joy as his commitment to, the, and, commitment to and love for his master increases. Don't think of this as a burden. Think of this as an opportunity to draw closer to the Lord and to see his blessings. Physically, maybe in different ways. Spiritually, in different ways. But we're all going to experience his blessings and that's going to bring great joy to us. So this isn't burdensome. We have a, a loving master, right? He loves us beyond compare. So... Why would we not want to serve him faithfully, to please him in all respects? Let's flip the coin here. Failure comes through unfaithfulness. For the one who was given one talent, how did failure come? Why did he fail? Because he did nothing with what the resource he was given by his master. He buried it. He did nothing with it. He was unfaithful, and he was called wicked, lazy. So that's where your failure is going to come. It's not going to come because at the end of your life, your bank account only has $5 in it. If you were faithful with that $5, you'll be welcome, good and faithful slave. Not about who has what, how much. It's about faithfulness. And so the flip side of that is you'll fail for being unfaithful. The steward that thinks he or she can be faithful only in certain areas but not in others does not have a proper attitude towards his or her master's possessions since he owns them all. It doesn't matter what I do with my finances. This has no impact on me spiritually. It doesn't matter. Ah, I find differently according to the words of our Lord himself. It does matter. According to Scripture, it does matter. It does matter. You cannot compartmentalize your finances and say, this really doesn't matter. It doesn't fall under my 
spiritual maturity. It does. It does. It has a great impact on your spiritual maturity. Number two, the, faith, the unfaithful steward will eventually have responsibilities delegated to him or taken away. And he or she may even be punished for his or her failure as a steward. Didn't we see that with the unfaithful slave who was given the one talent and was unfaithful with it? Punished for failure. And look at this as well. The unfaithful steward's character will suffer. And he or she may develop deep attitudes of bitterness and discontentment. He or she may even come to hate his or her master because you put yourself at a distance from your master. You've taken what your master has entrusted you with and said, I'm not going to do anything with that. I don't care about what my master thinks. And that can result in bitterness, discontentment, even hatred towards the master. We don't want that, right? Okay, moving on here to stewardship's goal. Emphasize this over and over and over. Contentment comes from living a life of faithfulness. Read that again. Contentment comes from living a life of faithfulness. We all desire to be content. Right? We all want to be content. To rest. To have peace in the midst of any storm around us to rest in the sovereignty of our God to rest in his divine providence how do we do that through a life of faithfulness that's going to bring contentment I'm doing what the master wants me to do he is pleased that brings me contentment Recognize God as the owner of all things and serving faithfully as his steward brings great joy and contentment to the life of the believer. Worry is replaced with a strong sense of security and peace. Knowing God has given you no more and no less than what you are able to handle. He's the one who gives, whether it be much or little. And he gives exactly the right amount to every single one of us to be stewards over. Exact right amount. Wherever you are right now is within God's providence. Even if you find yourself in a challenging place, a difficult place, where you've made many mistakes and bad decisions, and you are where you are, okay, the Lord wants you there now but he's giving you something now, instructions from his word to help you become faithful if you have not been faithful. Dayton writes here, as we apply the principles of God's economy, we will begin to get out of debt, spend more wisely, start saving for our future goals, and give even more to the work of Christ. Yes, this will result in greater generosity, and hopefully it should, right? Hopefully it should, and hopefully it will. But that's not the end goal either. The end goal is the transformation of our hearts. So, but this is the practical side. 
as our hearts are transformed. Okay, I understand, Lord. I need to get out of debt. I need to spend more wisely. I need to save for the future, realizing you are the one who has all plans under control. I'm resting in your sovereignty, but I want to follow your principles. If I follow your principles, there will be blessing. I guarantee that. can't tell you what that blessing will look like, but I guarantee you the Lord will bless you. And some of those greatest blessings are the joy and contentment that we receive. And the rest, knowing he has everything under control. So, move on here to stewardship's test. Are you ambitious? There may be some. I'm ambitious. I want to get all that I can. But is your ambition godly or selfish? So godly ambition pursues faithfulness towards the master. I'm ambitious for you, Lord. I want to be faithful to you. That should be where your ambition is channeled. While worldly ambition pursues personal gain for one's own self-interest. There's a difference in a worldly ambition and a godly ambition. Did Paul have ambition? The Apostle Paul? Yes, he did. His ambition was to please Christ, to be faithful to Christ. So, these are some key questions to ask yourself when it comes to stewardship. Do you have an attitude of a steward? Are you pursuing faithfulness? The attitude of a steward, as we've said over and over here, it doesn't belong to me, it belongs to him. I am just a steward. Therefore, I must pursue faithfulness. That is my role in this stewardship journey. Okay, so that's point A, a biblical stewardship overview. And hopefully even in this short time we spent, that has had some deep impact on you. And I pray that the Lord will continue to work on your heart there. So now I want to focus on point B, the biblical emphasis on money and possessions. In other words, what does the Bible have to say? Does it have anything to say about this? Where should I go for my primary source for financial advice? Turn on the TV, watch CNBC, go to Yahoo Finance, listen to the talking heads. Are they going to give us the best advice? You listen to them. All you're going to get is worry and concern because the future is so uncertain. We've got to go all to cash with our investments. It's always about worry and concern, all those talking heads. The next big debt crisis. The debt ceiling, right? That's on everybody's minds right now. You listen to that, that's just going to bring your heart down. Listen to Scripture, you'll have a very different perspective that allowed the Apostle Paul to say while he's in prison... I have everything that I need. Everything. I am content. In prison, I am content. I know Christ. He knows me. And my days are in his hands. Every single one of them. 
Any of us in prison right now? I don't think so. Any of us miss a meal? I don't think so. So, we need to have the attitude that the Apostle Paul had. So now let's look at some of this content. Biblical content here. So from Dayton, Your Money Counts. Uh, another little excellent book. I actually just have it electronically, but uh, this is another um, resource that will be found in the resource section at the end. So the Bible contains over 31,000 verses, of which 2,350, approximately 8%, contain references to money and possessions. Did you realize that? In contrast, the Bible contains approximately 500 verses on prayer, and less than 500 verses on faith. Certainly that prayer and faith are pervasive throughout Scripture, no doubt about it, but direct references here. Certainly there's stories of faith, stories of prayer, but direct references. So the Bible is absolutely authoritative when it comes to finances. It's not going to tell you how to invest in your 401k or what investments to pick, or which credit cards to use, or whether or not to use it. That's not the point. The principles are there that you take and then apply practically. So the Bible is no less authoritative in the area of finances than it is in the areas of the doctrines of God, man, sin, salvation, the church, matters concerning the future. The Bible is not less authoritative when it comes to your finances than it is about these important doctrinal matters. The Bible carries authority when it comes to your finances. The late Larry Burkett, who was a popular Christian author and speaker in the realm of biblical financial principles, writes, Let me make it very clear. We have been taught false principles by the world in which we live. The plumb line for truth is God's word, not a college textbook or standard practice. Show you one last book here for today that's really started my journey 30 years ago by Larry Burkett, The Complete Financial Guide for Young Couples. I was not even married yet. I'm like, I want to get married one day, and I want to understand how to handle my finances. So I picked up this book. I think I still actually have the receipt that I used as a bookmark, 1993, when I purchased this. Wasn't living here, didn't know John MacArthur, but uh, guess what? Reading the introduction, still, when I read it, I didn't know who he was, so this kind of came later, a realization. Who's the introduction by? John MacArthur. So John wrote the introduction to this book, and I had no knowledge of him, but uh, the Lord used this book, in addition to another book that I was introduced a little bit later, the same year, by John MacArthur, The Gospel According to Jesus. Those two books, I mean, Scripture, of course, is primary. But as far as books, extra-biblical books, this book and John's book, The Gospel According to Jesus, were totally life-transforming for me. The Lord used those books to lead me here from the Midwest. So it's, it's amazing that journey, and to see them married together when I realized, oh, John wrote the introduction for this book. So Larry Burkett has passed away several years ago, 
but uh, he was kind of the grandfather, the father, the guru, if you will, of uh, Christian biblical finances. And so uh, he had a great impact on my life. So I just wanted to share that. So here's Larry Burkett demonstrating that Scripture is the authority. It is the plumb line for us when it comes to our finances. The Bible serves as a fundamental source of knowledge and wisdom when it comes to money matters and must be understood and applied in order for the believer to experience God's blessing in his or her finances. Especially true, thank you for the wives that have come here today to join in. So this is especially true when it comes to married couples' finances since marital difficulties are primarily caused by the mishandling of money. Take that in. Those who are not married, maybe the Lord is leading you to be married one day. But it's true. Most marital troubles can be traced back to issues of money, arguments over money, whether you have it or not, how to get more or less, who's spending too much, who's not taking care of this or that. And most married couples have never been taught these biblical principles of financial stewardship or even the basics of handling personal finances. And hopefully we're changing that today for any of those who would agree with that statement. Burkett also writes this. I don't have it up there, but uh, it's footnote 10 if you have the notes. Unfortunately, he writes, unfortunately, mismanagement of money accounts for the majority of divorces in America today. That's as true now as it was 30 years ago. Number one cause of divorce whether in the church or out, is typically money issues. Certainly infidelity can come into that, but we're going to see even how finances and infidelity can come into play together. So here quoting John in that foreword in the introduction, statistics show that money trouble is the number one cause of stress and failure in marriages. Christians are not exempt, and one reason appears to be that many Christian couples are oblivious to what the Bible teaches about managing family finances. And that's our pastor 30 years ago in that book that I showed you. So let's take now a look at the teaching tools of the Messiah. In a large portion of the parables found in the Gospels, Jesus used money, wages, or possessions and wealth to identify and illustrate spiritual truths because he knew this is what people face every day. And he used those practical things to teach spiritual truth. Burkett writes, Jesus dedicated about two-thirds of all parables in the New Testament to teaching the principles of how to handle money properly. Have you considered that? Practical advice from finances and possessions to teach spiritual truth. That's what he wants to do with you, too. That's what he wants to do with me. Just a few examples here of the parables of Jesus. Treasure hidden in a field. Pearl of great value. The unmerciful slave. And then, I don't include the rest, but they are in your notes. Laborers in the vineyard, the loving father and the two sons. Faithful versus the wicked slave. The talents. Man on a long journey. Moneylender and two debtors. The good Samaritan. The rich fool. Building a tower. King contemplating battle, a lost silver coin, unjust yet shrewd manager, rich man in Lazarus, 
10 minas and 10 slaves. See all the references to, to money or finances there? In all those parables. This is notable here. Jesus spoke more about money and possessions than the topics of heaven and hell combined. He often used the temporal and material aspects of creation to illustrate eternal spiritual truths, as we've already said. Foundational understanding. These teachings are critical to our sanctification. How a believer handles earthly finances is the clearest earthly indicator of his or her level of spiritual maturity and reveals what he or she loves the most. Burkett says, the way we handle money is nothing more than the outward expression of what's going on inside. Uh-oh. So, Larry Burkett used to say this, and he wrote this. Show me your checkbook, and I'll describe your spiritual condition. A lot of us don't carry checkbooks anymore, but uh, show me your financial statement. Show me your credit card statement. Show me your bank statements. Show me your portfolio statement. And I'll tell you your spiritual condition. Anybody want to pull out their latest credit card statement or bank statement? And let me read through it to everyone. Hmm? Anybody? I'm not going to call on anyone. Don't worry. All right? I'm not going to ask you to do that. But couples often come to marital counseling. And they have issues and problems. And the first thing a pastor might say to them, can I see your latest credit card statement. What does that have to do with anything? Well, it has to do with everything. It has to do with everything. This is so impactful on your relationships. Wealth is much more than money. Wealth includes everything we've been entrusted with by God. As I mentioned before, relationships. Husband, wives, parents, children, church, family, and especially pertains to our eternal salvation, which is priceless beyond measure. Go back to that passage, Luke 16. With what you've heard, maybe you will hear this in a bit different light. With everything you've heard so far here. He was faithful in a very little thing, is faithful also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? Right? If you've not been faithful with what we find on that credit card statement or that bank statement, who's going to entrust true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. Has that layer been peeled back a bit to reveal maybe I'm serving wealth and I don't realize it? Now I'm being exposed. My heart is being exposed. I didn't realize it. I am serving wealth. I'm bowing down at the God of mammon instead of the God of creation. How about this, Matthew 6, 20 to 21. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor dust rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure? 
Is it in your bank book, your savings account, your 401k, your house, your cars, your vacations, or lack thereof? Not having those things and desire them, desiring them strongly can lead to idolatry because you want that and you're serving that. I want what everybody else has. They've been blessed. Why am I not blessed in the same way? They have so much. Why don't I have that? And you begin to covet. You want that. Why am I in this position, Lord? I want what they have. Be careful. You may be breaking one of the major commandments. Be careful. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you are focused on, what you are pursuing, that's where your heart is. And back to this compartmentalizing finances, the deception of that. Any person who attempts to compartmentalize her finances apart from his or her spiritual life or discounts the importance that God places on finances is deceiving himself or herself. Finances are a mean by which God, means by which God tests the believer's love and devotion because money and possessions are often in competition with the Lord for the believer's affections. As I mentioned already, this can lead to idolatry. You cannot serve God and wealth. You will serve one or the other. You cannot serve both. Money captivates our attention. In one way or another, the majority of our waking moments are focused on earning, paying, borrowing, lending, worrying, handling, talking about money and possessions. Wealth could even be the focus of our dreams. Not only our waking moments, but our moments while we're asleep. It can grab our attention or worry about money. Much of our time is spent in the sinful activity of coveting, seeking to gain the things we desire but do not yet possess, newer car, larger house, increased salary, etc. This lack of contentment can lead to the pursuit of those things due to our desire to keep up with the Joneses. Financial distress and marital trouble are certainly not far behind. Burkett comments to those of us who are married, if you don't settle early in your marriage that money is never going to make you happy, you'll spend your entire life doing urgent things rather, important, rather than important things and find at age 70 that you spent your whole life chasing after the Joneses only to discover that when you finally cut off with them, they had refinanced. Oh, they pulled out money from all their equity and now they're spending that. Oh, okay, now we got to do that. So very important here. Money is not the measure of your worth. That's very important for us, especially as men, to hear. Money is not the measure of your worth. When we're guys, we meet someone new. Hey, my name's so-and-so. What's your name? What's the second thing we ask after we ask their name? What do you do? By saying that, we're saying, that's how I'm going to value you by what you do. And then in my mind, I'm going to categorize that and I'm going to put you in some sort of hierarchy of financial 
success or lack of success? And I realize, and I'll probably even say it to some of you, you know, because that's just kind of our common opener. What do you do? Ladies, when you meet someone new and you ask them their name, do you ask them what do you do? Typically, is that your first? Any ladies in here who want to respond to that? What's, you don't, right, ladies don't do that, right? Nope. It's not what's on their mind. But us guys, that's exactly what we do. What do you do? Yeah. Yes, of course, we want to find out something about another person. But uh, that tends to be our focus. But that is not the measure of your wealth. Measure, your wealth is not the measure of who you are, your value. You exist as a person apart from your wealth or lack thereof. Your value is not determined by your income or your net worth. The world will tell you very differently. It will tell you very differently every day, everywhere you go, that the measure of your worth is by how much you earn and how much you have. Luke 12, 15, Jesus says differently. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Take that in, men. Whether you have little or much, that is not what your life consists of. That is not what your value is measured by. That is not what your worth is measured by. That's what we do. Jesus also said, be on guard, and it's not here, but beware, be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has abundance does his life consist of possessions. So that's the full verse. Be on your guard against every form of greed. Even though it's common practice, God does not define you by your money or possessions. You are an image bearer designed with the ability to have fellowship with the everlasting God. Proverbs 22.2 For the rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. Who determines who becomes wealthy and who is poor? Who determines that? God determines that. God determines that. So if you're in one position or the other and you don't like it, you have to remember, this is where God placed you for his ultimate purposes and glory, which we won't understand this side of of heaven. But he has sovereignly placed you wherever you are, whether rich or poor, Again, money is not the measure of worth. Therefore, the challenge is to develop proper perspective of money and how God uses it as a powerful sanctifying tool to transform us more and more into the image of his son. Money is to be used, not served. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. You've often heard that you won't find a hearse with a U-Haul trailer behind it. Can't take anything with you when you die. Money is a fleeting object in the pursuit of fools. Proverbs 23. Do not wear yourself out to gain wealth. Cease from it for consideration. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. 
You can be very wealthy one day and the next day it be all gone. Contemplate the meaning of this following quote. Money, which is a very uncertain value and sometimes has no value at all and even less. In other words, it's wise not to value money because things exist that are of greater eternal worth than money. And sometimes money is a burden rather than a blessing. The more you have, the more you have to care for. The more it will require your attention. And so we often value money as a positive thing, but money can serve as a burden to us as well. Chesterton adds his own comments, if you follow C.K. Chesterton at all, um, quite witty. Among the rich, you will never find a really generous man, even by accident. They may give their money away, but they will never give themselves away. They are egotistic, secretive, dry as old bones. This is key. To be clever enough to get all that money, one must be dull enough to want it. You've got to be dull to want to have money as your major pursuit. That's foolish. Money should never be your major pursuit. So faithfulness in financial stewardship is a prerequisite for spiritual maturity and ministry stewardship. Halverson writes this, Jesus Christ said more about money than any other single thing because money is of first importance when it comes to a person's real nature. Money is an exact index to our true character. Throughout Scripture, we find an intimate correlation between the development of a person's character and how he or she handles money. Was that not true with the slaves of the master and the talents? The true character of the unfaithful slave was revealed by what he did with what he was given. Who's going to entrust true riches to you, with, to you if you cannot handle even temporal, physical things. MacArthur writes here, it is significant that one of the basic requirements for a man to be in position of spiritual leadership is that he must be one who manages his own household well. Even the Lord taught that the quality of our stewardship in this life will determine our reward in the next, as we've already alluded to. You can take a look at Matthew 25. The simple fact is that we cannot be truly effective for God if we fail to manage our finances well. That's our own pastor. Those are his words. Simple fact is that we cannot be truly effective for God if we fail to manage our finances well. Back to 1 Corinthians 4. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Think of the example of Epaphras, Tychicus, and Colossians. So the bottom line, if you are not faithful with money, it is highly likely you will not be faithful with ministry. Are you listening? You hear that? You're not faithful with temporal, physical, money. You're not going to be faithful with eternal spiritual ministry. 
how you handle physical assets, assets is an external indicator how you will handle spiritual assets. Again, whether it's little or much, that's not the question. Faithful, trustworthy. If your finances are not in order and you don't think that's an issue, that that issue matters to the Lord, you're in serious error and your thinking is not properly aligned with his word. As the previous scriptures clearly reveal, it matters greatly to the Lord since he has provided us with a wealth of knowledge and wisdom on this topic in his word. So what is necessary? What is required of you is the necessity to have your wrong patterns of worldly thinking torn down and rebuilt with right patterns of thinking aligned with Scripture. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is about. Transforming our thinking so that we understand what the will of God is. So, and we'll look at that passage in just a minute. True spiritual transformation only comes about as the Spirit of God through constant and consistent exposure to the written Word of God causes you to have a change in your mindset so that your thinking patterns are altered and they reflect the reality of how God wants you to think and therefore act as a Christian steward. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Your mind must be transformed by the word of God. Stewardship test. We're almost here. We'll take a, a break here in just a minute. So look at those statements. What do they reveal about you? Bank statements, savings, investment, credit card statements. Do you understand the emphasis that God places on how you handle your money and how your handling of his finances is a direct indicator of your spiritual maturity? These are things you need to ask yourselves. If you're married, ask each other as a couple. How, do I, how I handle my finances, what does that reveal about me? And do I understand that that is an indicator of my spiritual maturity? All right, so we'll finish. For now, we'll take a 10-minute break, so right around 10 o'clock we'll get started again. So hopefully uh, this first portion has been helpful for you. So take a little break and get some refreshments if you need. Get up and stretch, and we'll get going around right around 10. All right, let's call in the troops. Two-minute warning. <laughs> Two-minute warning.
All right, let's uh, get it going here. As the last couple will be coming in, but uh, let's shift gears here and move to the next section, which is biblical dual stewardship defined and explained. It's a mouthful there, but let's uh, build this argument for our proper understanding of stewardship. Okay, so first of all, the very first point under this heading of biblical dual ownership defined and explained is that God owns everything and dispenses it as he pleases. We've already made that point, but we want to make it even more concretely here. A couple of verses are mentioned for you. The first one, Psalm 50, the end of verse 12, God says, For the world is mine and all it contains. That's fundamental to not only this, but any biblical, a proper biblical worldview, which is the opposite of what our secular age tells us. God says, the world is mine. I created it all. It belongs to me. Everything in it. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. His entire created order. It belongs all to him. Second point in this argument here. God has given dominion and delegated stewardship to man. So God owns it all. It all belongs to him. But when he established his creation order, he delegated authority. He delegated dominion over his creation to man. God has given the earth to mankind in order for man to exercise dominion and practice stewardship over his creation since man is the only being described in the Bible as being created in God's image and therefore capable of exercising dominion as an image bearer. We are the only creatures created in his image and therefore have abilities that no other creature has. And with those abilities comes responsibility. So here, right at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. Is mankind a blight to creation? Would creation be all better if man was removed? No, God set in order things so that man was at the apex and is given dominion over it all. Of course, realize in chapter 3 of Genesis that the fall impacts all the created order with sin. But the original intention was God giving dominion because he has been created in God's image. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Wow, if we just understood that in our society today, we'd be a lot further along than the mess we're in. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on earth. God gave dominion to Adam and Eve, the responsibility to rule over it all, even though it all belongs to him. So point three here, image bearers possess, or we could say own, only what the creator gives to them. Think of this passage from Deuteronomy 8. God is reminding the second generation of the wandering Israelites in the desert before they enter the land. He reminds them, in the wilderness, through Moses, in the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Therefore, you may say in your heart, my power and my strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember that the Lord your God, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. When they go into the land and they take over, the Lord is richly going to bless the nation until the times when they rebel against him. And when they are richly blessed, they don't, are not to say, I did this. I made this. This is my wealth. No, it's the Lord who has given you the power to make wealth. The Lord blessed the Israelites as they entered the land and gave them great success. So God alone gives the ability to make wealth, to earn an income, to acquire possessions due to the imago dei, the image of God. This is as true for us today as it was for Israel 3,500 years ago. Nothing has changed. Point two under that. God's economy is designed for people to work, to earn an income, and to provide for their families through labor. This was even true for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall in Genesis 3. Work is not a result of the fall. Work has simply been become more difficult as a result. But work was given to man as a responsibility in the garden prior to the fall in Genesis 3. And our labor reflects God's active nature. Is God a, an active God? Is he a creative God? Yes, he is. And we're created in his image. This is illustrated by David in 1 Chronicles 29. So David was told, you cannot build the temple. You're a man of blood. You're a man of war. I want a man of peace to build my temple. Your son will build my temple. But I'll allow you to gather all of the raw materials for that temple. And so they gathered and gathered, and they had more than enough, an abundance. And so David is offering this prayer to God. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have, have given you. For we are sojourners before you and tenants. As all our fathers were, our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand, and all is yours. Great attitude, right? Great prayer of, of 
praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. So God owns everything. We're created in his image. As image bearers, we're given responsibility and we are given ownership. Point four here. Personal ownership of property was protected under the Mosaic Covenant. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. Personal ownership of property. You say, but God owns it all. But he gives certain things to certain stewards. And he says, this is yours to manage. And you have rights over what you've been given. Communism is not a part of this. Right? It's not a part of this. Socialism, not a part of this. Although God is the ultimate owner of all things, he has ordered the economy of his creation so that it functions in a particular way. First, he's given responsibility over the created order on earth to mankind. And second, he has provided for personal ownership of property. We can see this in Exodus 22 because it clearly outlines the rights of personal property owners under the law of Moses. This is demonstrated by the fact that in Exodus 20, there was a moral commandment against both coveting and stealing. If everything belongs to everyone, there's no coveting. Right? You can't covet what belongs to everyone. You can't steal what belongs to everyone. But if you have personal property rights, somebody has this, I don't have that, and I want it. That's coveting. If I go and take that, that's stealing. That's two commandments right there, broken. So there is God's law given to Israel demonstrating that there are personal property rights. Exodus 20, 15, you shall not steal. In verse 17, you shall not covet. Two of those ten commandments assume the divinely approved nature of private ownership of property. There is no such thing as communal property in God's economy. People often bring up Acts 2. Wasn't this a sort of the beginning of communism here? Everybody came together and they all shared everything. Well, they willingly gave what was theirs to the church for the use by everyone. It was in their possession. Even Ananias and Sapphira, they were told, this is your property. You can do with it what you will. And they lied and said, oh, we gave it all to the church when they held back a portion. Peter says, that was your right to hold back that portion, but you lied about it. You said you gave it all. So there was nothing wrong with having those personal possessions, but they were very generous and gave. So this, this young church in Jerusalem with so many sojourners, a part of it, that had come for the feast, Pentecost, would be cared for. And many of them would stay there as the church grew in its initial stages, the early days. Okay? So, man is not to take another man's possessions, or he's not even to desire to have them in a way that is sinful, coveting. Because those things have been given to that person by God. They have not been given to me. What I have is what I have personal rights. But I shouldn't desire or take what belongs to someone else. Okay, now let's look at what the consequences would be for stealing. 
Exodus 22, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. You steal one ox, you got to give back five if you get caught. You steal one sheep, you got to give back four. Right? Principle of restitution. And it's punitive. You don't have to just give back what you took. You've got to give back more than what you took. Fivefold, fourfold. Zechariah 5.3, then he said to me, this is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away. Stealing another man's possessions results in a divine curse upon thieves. That's under the Mosaic law. What about the New Testament? Stealing is also condemned with a command to work and share with others in need instead of taking from others. Ephesians 4.28 He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Don't steal, rather produce. Don't take, rather create so that you will have something to share with those in need. Recognize that God owns all that you own. Biblical understanding recognizes that God is the ultimate owner of all things, and he placed man into the role of stewardship over his creation. Therefore, the right attitude for the Christian is to transfer all ownership of everything he or she owns to God and recognize himself or herself as a steward of his possessions. This is the first step towards true biblical contentment, as we've already discussed. Recognizing God is the owner of all things, and that I am a steward. So, are you guys getting warm in here? Getting a little warm? All right, okay, just checking. Yeah, it's starting to get a little warm up here. Just watching that temperature thing go up, up, up. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so here's some, some principles here. Hold loosely to the things of this world. As I already mentioned, hold things with an open palm, not a closed, clenched fist. A.W. Tozer illustrates this here. In his, he has a little book, Five Hours for Spiritual Power was this. He said, never own anything. Now, he's going to unpack that, okay? What does that mean in practical terms? He says, I do not mean by this that you cannot have things. I mean that you ought to get delivered from the sense of possessing them. This sense of possessing is what hinders us. All babies are born with their fists clenched, and it seems to me it means this is mine. One of the first things they say when they begin to speak is, mine, mine in an angry voice. That sense of this is mine is very injurious thing to the spirit. If you can get rid of it so that you have no feeling of possessing anything, there will come a great sense of freedom and liberty into your life. Understand the point, right? Yes, you do possess things, but Lord, this is all yours. You can take it whenever you want. Very few of us have that attitude. 
Lord, you can take it all whenever you want. We should desire to get to that place. If you take it all, that's up to you. But Lord, give me the strength. Give me your grace to endure. Makes us think of Job, right? What Job endured. In Luke 14.33, the Lord clearly stated that this is a necessary attitude in regards to salvation. When he said, So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Is that your heart attitude? When you came to Christ, you can't say, Lord, you can have everything but this. No, Lord, I give it all up. Because by, in that exercise of giving it all up, I'm saying I'm no longer serving that. I am serving you. I belong to you. All this stuff is not of any importance or significance. You are supreme. And I belong to you. We must recognize our dependence on God for all things. God gives what he wills and takes what he wills. And as I mentioned already, recall the attitude of Job when he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. And what was his immediate response after that? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessing God. Worshiping God. Even in the midst of the most unimaginable personal tragedy possible. Never forget God's character as a loving God who will only do things that will result in your good and his glory. Never forget that. Don't be afraid of what he will do or take from you. That's a fear, right? That we naturally have. Okay, God, don't... Lord, I really... I understand that you are owner of everything. I understand that you control it all. I understand I possess nothing. But Lord, it's going to be really hard if you take that from me. It's going to be really challenged. And, and that's more weakly, so more a weaker understanding when it comes to our physical possessions. When it comes to our family, that's where it gets really challenging, Right? Lord, if you take them, you are doing good. You are doing your will. So be willing, <clears throat> be ready to accept that. Right? Howard Dayton writes, when we acknowledge God's ownership, every spending decision becomes a spiritual decision. No longer do we ask, Lord, what you want, do you want me to do with my money? The question is restated. Lord, what do you want me to do with your money? This is yours. It belongs to you. Again, whether you have little or much, that's not the point. It's that he is the determiner now of what you will do. Lord, is this decision wise? Lord, is this decision going to bring glory to you? Lord, is this going to further your kingdom? Even in the mundane little things. The greatest enemy of stewardship is the sinful, selfish heart of man. 
To become a faithful steward, one must deal fiercely with the sin of selfishness and die to self on a daily basis. When we come to Christ and we submit ourselves to him, it's not just a one-time act. It's a daily act. Take up your cross, how often? Daily, right? Take up your cross daily. Bottom line, you are not your own. We're getting out of just the realm of our possessions to our very souls. God owns you and God owns everything that you have now or will ever possess in the future, including your talents and abilities. God provides you with the ability to work. Pursue it with excellence. Recognize that because of the Lord's grace, you have been given the ability to work. So work with diligence. You cannot control your boss, your co-workers, or even your salary. But you can control your effort. Therefore, do everything for God's glory, and you will glorify God by serving as a, what? Faithful steward. Going back, 1 Corinthians 4, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Also, later in 1 Corinthians 10.31, we're all familiar with this. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, we're going to bring this down to, I think, what is a deep revelation of our spiritual salvation this concept of redemption. There are many aspects that define our salvation that we could take a look at. But this is directly related to a concept found in the marketplace, this idea of redemption. Okay, so let's take a look here. The purchase of redemption. An equally important fundamental foundational truth that believers have been redeemed purchased for a price out of the marketplace of sin and death. God not only owns everything that we possess as his stewards, he also fully owns us, body and soul. Let's dive into this, all right? Redemption defined. The term simply means to purchase out of the marketplace. But depending on the context, it is used in different senses in Scripture in reference to one particular aspect within the doctrine of salvation. So in one sense, the purchase is made of a slave going to the slave market, and a slave is purchased in that marketplace. And when that happens, there is a transfer of ownership from one master to another. And in this sense, our souls were in bondage to sin and death. And now we have a new master. We are in bondage to Christ because he paid the purchase price. And what was that purchase price? To rescue us from sin and death. The purchase price was his perfect life being taken from him. Well, actually, I should rephrase that. It wasn't taken from him. He gave it up willingly, right? That was the price. That tells you not something about our value, our worth, Oh, we're worth so much because Jesus died for us. 
No, that tells you the depth of sin. What it costs to be redeemed from sin and death. Our sin and death is so prevalent and deep and fundamental to who we are as fallen sinful creatures. What did it require to save us out of that? It required a perfect life to be given in our stead. That is the only thing that God the Father would accept to free us from the penalty power and presence of sin. The death of his own son. So don't get all high and mighty and think, I'm worth so much because God paid such a high price for me. No, he paid to take you from the depths of sin out of spiritual death into spiritual life, into a life of righteousness. His robes for mine. Think about that. My sin transferred to him, the sinless one. His perfect righteousness transferred to me, the sinner. And how was that accomplished? Through redemption. Through the purchase in the marketplace of sin and death out of that into bondage to a new master. In another sense, the purchase is made to set one free. Not only are we given a new master, but we are also freed. We're freed from the curse of the law, and the result is we are adopted as sons, not slaves in this respect. And Galatians 3 is all about that and four. So Christians have been set free in the sense that their sins have been forgiven, and they've been set free from the wrath of God since he poured it out fully upon his Son and served, who served as a sinless substitute for them, for us. Enduring the Father's punishment for their sin and propitiation or satisfaction of his wrath. God cannot bring us into his family. He cannot adopt us as son, sons without dealing with sin. Because he is a righteous and holy God. He cannot do it. He cannot just say, your sins are forgiven and remain a righteous and holy God. There had to be a price paid. And he said, I'm going to pay that price with my one unique son who will give his life as a ransom for many. And with that, those few hours on the cross, God the Father poured out his wrath fully and completely. Not a drop was left for those of us that he adopted as sons. Not a drop was left. No punishment remains for us. No wrath for us. And the son said, I will willingly do that, Father, because that will please you. That is your will. I came not to do my will, but the will of my Father. 
And he did that. He was obedient, as Colossians tells us, to the point of death, even death on a cross. That God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name. Lord. It's uh, just humbling, humbling to think about that. Look back here at the example of Israel's redemption. Deuteronomy 4.20, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession, as today. Deuteronomy 7.6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. You are set aside. You are different You are separate than all the other nations. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And Did he do that because they were the greatest nation? No. You are the least. But God chose to pour out his favor on you, Israel, and to take you as a people for his own possession. Numbers fifteen forty one. For I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. That's an example we have from the Old Testament. How about from the New Testament? The redemption of the church of God. Acts twenty twenty eight. Paul, speaking to the Ephesian elders, says to them, he's made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, the death of his son. In writing to Titus, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We are not of such great value that the Lord said, oh, I want that because it's of such great value. No, he's demonstrating his grace, his mercy, his love on undeserving sinners so that we would be pure and a people for his own possession. Peter writes this similarly here in 1 Peter 1. Knowing that you were redeemed, not with perishable things, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That is where we stand. Redeemed, purchased with the blood of the lamb, his own death paid the price for us so that we might be his possession. So, bottom line, if you're a true believer... You have a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know this. He bought you out of physical and spiritual death with his own substitutionary death and has given you eternal life by his own resurrection from the dead. He purchased you out of slavery to sin so that you would become a slave to righteousness. Does that put your stewardship obligation in a different light? That sheds some new light for you, for me? Your stewardship obligation, both spiritual and financial, is real, and therefore, it matters how you conduct yourself as a slave of the master while here on earth. 
It matters how we handle what he's given to us. If it took that great a price to pay for our sin, what ought to be our response? So, test. How do you view your blood-bought freedom? Freedom is not freedom for its own sake. Oh, you're free now. You can do whatever you want. Your Redeemer commands and deserves your obedience. Are you being an obedient and submissive slave and steward to your master? Ask yourself that question. Right? Hopefully that's impactful. Any comments on that? Any response? We'll, we'll get to a Q&A here in a minute, but I uh, just want to give you an opportunity while that's fresh. Or you just want to contemplate that. I understand. Okay, so let's take a look here at some biblical stewardship resources that I've already mentioned. I mentioned that book, Who's in Charge Here? Beginning Your Life Stewardship Journey. And so there's this, the link right there to the PDF. So you can get that PDF for free. I've, uh, this was also, this next one was mentioned, Howard Dayton, Your Money Counts. As I said, I just have that electronically, so I don't have a book to show you. Uh, you'll find quotations from that book uh, a lot in here. Biblical Guide to Earning, Spending, Saving, Investing, Giving, and Getting Out of Debt. Then, the book I already mentioned as well, True Riches, What Jesus Really Said About Money in Your Heart. This little book here. Uh, again, I don't think you could get it out of our bookstore, but you can certainly get it on Amazon. Um, some good books by Randy Alcorn, uh, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. That's a good one there. So those are some books for you. Some online stewardship resources. So a great website, I think, is probably the best among any financial websites that uh, would say they are Christian-based or faith-based in the Christian realm. I think uh, Faith and Finance. So you can go to faithfi.org, and you're going to find all kinds of articles on stewardship. They have a daily podcast that... uh, is basically one of two podcasts that I listen to every morning where the first 5, 10, sometimes 15 minutes might be on a particular biblical principle of, of finances, of stewardship. And then it's Q&As. You know, you probably, if any of you are familiar with you know, Larry Burkett, early in the day he had the radio show, people call in, ask questions, he answers it. Of course, another popular guy that does that these days is Dave Ramsey. Um, but uh, this is a show you can find or just listen to the podcasts, anywhere you find your podcasts. Also has a budgeting app that is very useful, community discussion groups, free financial coaching to help you develop debt reduction and spending plans. So great resource there. You can just go online, take a look at all the plethora of of items they have available there. Next one would be Crown Financial Ministries. Um, Kind of tells a little bit of history. Larry Burkett was the first CEO Howard Dayton served as the successor to Larry Burkett. 
Then in 2000, um, Larry's Christian Financial Concepts merged with Howard's Crown Ministries, so now it's just called Crown Financial Ministries. But uh, a lot of helps there as well. Uh, I'd go with A before I'd go with B or even C that I'm going to show your compass. Howard Dayton left that previous ministry and founded Compass in 2009. This is really about uh, small group Bible studies on finances, but hopefully you're getting that right here and now. So just wanted to mention those to you. Another one that uh, was mentioned earlier was Ron Blue, and he has a site, Ron Blue Institute. He's very similar to Larry Burkett. Larry Burkett passed away. Ron Blue's still alive. But uh, a lot of this has helped. There's good curriculum tools for individuals, churches, schools, high schools, professions. So that's a good place to go as well. Okay? So those are just some resources listed there. And as a kind of introduction to the rest of what we're going to be talking about, I want to give this overview before we get into these specific categories. Okay? So point F here, biblical stewards, five uses of money. That's what we're going to do for the rest of our time together is talk about these five uses of money. When you think about money, what can I do with it? Well, basically, you can do five things with it. You can earn it. You can live on it. You can give it. You can owe it. And you can also grow it. So, you remember these five things. Earn, live, give, owe, grow. Those are the five basic uses of money, and we want to delve into what Scripture has to say about each of these. With an opening at each, each time, we're going to examine a heart issue. And we're going to take a look at that heart issue and how it relates to the topic. And those heart issues certainly overlap with the other topics here, but that's really what we're going to focus on for the remainder of our time. So we'll be covering earning and living uh, in our last couple of, of sessions for today. But we are, yeah, right up around that time. Take a little break again here um, after we have a little bit of a Q&A. So I do want to open it up. I know that this first topic is not necessarily, well, okay, it's not necessarily practical. It's the foundation. It's the principles laying the foundation for stewardship. But I do want to open up for you know, an opportunity, um, if there's any questions here, any clarification that's needed, and if not, that's fine, because like I said, I think more questions will come when we get to the other, these other five sections here. But anything at all, anyone, or just a response or an encouragement, challenge? Sam? So the question is, I'm repeating it for the recording here. So is it um, good stewardship if after I used all the resources God has given me to meet needs of my family, I'm giving, um, is it poor stewardship then to live lavishly? Not necessarily. Again, it's all about the heart issue. Um, There are many wealthy people that are doing those things that you've said. They're giving away a lot of money. They're living within, you know, within their means. They're not overspending, but they have maybe a large income. So 
there's ways that, that Proverbs talk about the man who is blessed. I mean, certainly Solomon was blessed, but his heart was in the right place at the beginning, right? His heart was, I want to be a wise ruler for your people. It wasn't about himself. And so the Lord gave him much abundance. It's not sinful to have a lot. Um, it's what you do with it and how you handle it. So, you know, I have a um, man who started the firm that I work for, who was in, the, in this industry for 50 years. He tells a story of, you know, the first 20 so years of that journey in his life. He was just living for himself and just gaining, gaining, gaining. And uh, um, he even retired when he was in his 30s. His wife said, no, 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 no. Don't stick around here. Your boys need to see you doing something productive. Get back out there. So he was kind of pushed back out, which was a good thing for him. And then um, he came along to some teaching like this. And it really transformed his heart. Now, he's a wealthy man. It really transformed his heart into becoming a very generous man, uh, having a stewardship mindset, seeking to you know, help the needy and just give away a lot of money seeking to build a firm that would have these principles as the foundation of that firm. And people like me are recipients of that type of philosophy. But, you know, he owns a jet and nice home, and he can buy whatever he wants, basically. Is he sinning by doing that? No. No. Could be. He may have struggles in his heart that he has to deal with, He may have greed issues that he has to deal with that maybe I don't know about, but it's all about heart. If the heart's in the right place and the Lord has blessed him with that and he's doing all those things that Scripture instructs him to do as a faithful steward, if he's doing that, no, not not sinful if he enjoys the fruit of that. Because there are many Proverbs that say, and even Ecclesiastes, to enjoy the fruit of our labor. So... Yeah, but there's, I mean, one person, you can have two people in the same position economically. One is not sinning by living comfortably, lavishly, and another one may very well be, right? So, and we'll come across some scriptural passages that will demonstrate that. So, good question there. Any follow-up or... life of poverty yeah yeah so on the flip side of that are we as christians called to live basically a life of poverty or close to that no we're not that called to do that either i mean when we have the attitude we've given it all away it all belongs to him so the lord is the one who's giving us this much or this much right he's the one who's determining that and yeah if we have very little and um, we are doing all we can, and the Lord has put us in a place, we have to think outside of the American context. We've got to think about the rest of the world. I mean, we, everyone in this room is extremely, extremely wealthy compared to probably, what, 89% of the world? We are extremely wealthy if we measure it simply in economic terms. We are. Whether you're struggling or not, you have access to so much more than 80, 90% of the world has access to, okay? 
So there are people living on barely anything. Um, and there's reasons for that. It may not be necessarily their fault. They're living in corrupt governments, under corrupt governments that take everything, that are not following the biblical principles for God's economy. They're following some sort of false system that has led to the impoverishment of the people, total impoverishment. So does God call us to um, live a life of poverty? No, I don't believe that either. I just believe that we are to be faithful. And as we're faithful, as we're good stewards, he's going to put us wherever he wants us along that path. And our heart needs to be continually checked, continually checked, and just realizing he's placed us there. So no, I don't think you can say, okay, God calls every single Christian to a certain level of economic life. That's just not true. He makes some rich, some poor, and we just simply need to be faithful stewards of whatever that is. So, yeah, I know we can, we, can deal, we can go through those questions in our mind and think, you know, I kind of feel guilty if I'm living on this certain level. Or maybe I should be giving it all away. Well, the Lord also calls us to care for our families too, right? So in the right perspective, understanding he's our provider and that we are simply to be faithful, but, you know, he who won't work won't eat, take care of your family. You know, there are many principles that Paul, the Apostle Paul taught in his epistles as well. So we just have to have the right understanding and attitude and allow the Lord to determine where we are in that economic scale. Um, there are some individuals who make a great amount of wealth and give most of it away. There are others who make a great amount of wealth, they give a certain portion away. And just remember that story of Ananias and Sapphira. Peter says to them, it was yours to do with what you want to do. Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit and said you've given it all when you didn't? You kept back some for yourself. It wasn't a problem for them to keep some for themselves. They all just had to be honest about it. Yeah, we sold this and here's a portion of those profits we want to give to the church. Nothing wrong with that. They were not required to give it all. But they were required to be honest to the Holy Spirit, and they were not. That's cost them their lives. So hopefully that helps address it. Maybe that will become clearer as we move through, especially with these five uses of money as we talk about them. Hopefully those things will become clearer. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, so comments here about, um, you know, going into retirement and feeling unproductive, going back into the workforce, whether or not you needed it, but uh, doing that. And I would say to that, you know, uh, this idea of retirement, and we're going to see that as we walk along here, is is false. It's it's not in Scripture. One-time retirement is mentioned for the priests. 
who were serving in the temple serve from age 25 to 50? And why was there a restriction on that? It was demanding. They were basically butchers, physically demanding, chopping up sacrifices, everything that they had to do, very physically demanding. And so at age 50, they were required to retire from that service, but not completely from ministry. They were still there to help the younger, help them, assist them, um, teach them, train them. But that's the only time in Scripture when retirement is even mentioned. So this idea is a modern idea that we've developed that has resulted in um, people just building a huge nest egg to then retire to a life of comfort and ease. That's sort of the American dream, right? When God never calls us to that. Now, there may be a time, there's certainly a time when we get older and we're less able to do things physically, mentally. There's going to come a time for you know, somebody to care for us. But as long as we have time and ability, God calls us to be productive. Now, that could be, hey, I earn this great income and I retire from my job, my career, and I do something else that's maybe voluntary. I serve, serve more in the church. Lord's given me enough that I don't need to work and I can support myself, my family, and I'm going to be very generous. But you don't ever go to a life of ease because you'll just, you're just turning yourself to a life of death, of a slow death. Okay? So we've got to get that out of our minds that the ultimate goal is to build up our 401k enough to where we can one day sit back and ease. That's just not what God has called us to. God is a worker. We're created in this image. We are to work. We're going to look at that as we look at earning here. Okay? So it's kind of in a nutshell, but we're, we're going to delve deeper into that for sure. But good comments there as well. Okay, anything else? Yes, Christian. Uh, you mentioned earlier that um, Yeah. Yeah, so the question is, I mentioned earlier, um, you know, when you just watch CNBC or those kinds of financial shows, that kind of news, um, am I saying, no, you should just stay away from that? I'm not saying don't be informed, okay? Just be informed first with your Bible and listen to everything else in light of what Scripture tells us, not in opposition, like, oh, I I read my Bible, now I'm going to go listen to these guys and get all their advice, Okay, I keep up, I have to, in my position, I have to keep up with what's going on in the economy um, and the marketplace. I have to do that for the position that I'm in. But I always keep it in mind, because I have clients calling that will say, okay, what are we going to do now? I, I, um, uh, the U.S. dollar is done. So now what are we moving to? What are your plans for that? Like, no, we don't have any plans for that. Sorry. What do you mean? You... you I've heard on this, this guy said, you know, the, the dollar is dead. So we better, what are we going to do? Okay, well, what do you think we can do? What are we going to do about that even if that happens? There's nothing you can do about that. Just be a faithful steward. Don't listen to that. Because that's, all that's doing is building fear in you. And you're reacting out of fear. 
That's not what we're called to do. God, okay, you take it all the way tomorrow. I've been faithful. I've done everything according to your word and your scripture, and you take it all away. Was I unfaithful? No. Through an economic collapse, whatever that might be. Nothing you can do about that. That's all in God's sovereignty. So, again, you can be informed. Remain informed. But all that needs to be in light of a higher authority, our scripture. Right? So, Sam. Is faithfulness Yeah, so is being a good steward one who has a budget and watches every dollar and penny carefully um, because that's what sometimes is taught? You know, you're going to hear some similar things from me, but hopefully from a, a different perspective is that, yes, to be a good steward, I need to know what's going on. Flocks, herds, sheep, do you know what's going on with them would be a biblical understanding of that. Well, for us, whatever we possess... Are we, do we have a good handle on all of that and not just leaving it to the wind, right? Because you're a steward of that. So there may be different ways to approach that. Am I saying a budget is an absolute essential necessity? Well, some of the things you read in here will say that. But understand, that's all in a proper perspective that I need to oversee this. You think that Joseph understood and had a good understanding of of everything that was under his care? You bet he did. Absolutely he did. Because he was a steward of it. And this is life or death for not only Egypt, for all the surrounding nations who are going to undergo this famine. Okay, you need to set aside 20% of the grain for the next seven years. And Joseph's responsible for that. So... You need to be able to have an understanding and oversee what God has given to you that may take different forms. For some people, um, you know, just the budgeting that I might describe, it just doesn't work. Well, okay, are you, you know, living within your means? Are you being generous? Are you saving for the future? Because that's also biblical wisdom. And if you're doing those things and you're taking care of the rest of your finances, not overspending, okay. That's fine. I'm more of an analytical guy. So, you know, I want to know where every dollar is going in and out. So that's how I'm going to handle mine. But I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong if you don't do it exactly that way. Because Scripture doesn't say have a budget. It does say be a wise steward. So good one there.